Allen on politics. Together we'll stand. Good morning once again and welcome to Ellen on Politics. Last week I was I have this bad habit of looking at the monitor instead of looking at the camera. So hi, let me look you in the eye. Look like an honest man. <laughs> so last week I was talking about how ethics drives to some extent political activity. Of course it helps when ethics also has behind it people's material interests, but I think a more ethical society would be more in, de, in the interest of all of us. Our material interests would be served as well as uh, fulfilling ethical obligations to each other. Last week I talked about the ethics of our relations to property, that is non-human stuff in the world, and how we could not, at least I can't see any way, to justify private property rights over the use of non-human resources or materials unless there's provision for everyone to have unconditional access to sufficient resources to live in a state of dignity, human dignity. All right, so that was last week and I talked about how as policy directions maybe a universal basic income and universal health care would be a good start on that. This week I want to talk about our relationships to each other as human beings particularly in the realms of politics and economics. That is, how we organize our political life together so that we can uh, make sure that we're interacting in a way that's fair to everybody and any governmental structures that are set up are not oppressive but actually serve the common interests of the community. And in the economic sphere, how we organize our lives as uh, in, in producing the things that we all need to live in creating products and growing food and building houses and all this, providing services to each other. How we can relate to each other in a way that's ethical and also serves our interests in the best way possible. So that's what I talked about last week and that's what I'm talking about today. If you would like to respond to what I'm saying, either last week or this week, you have to sign into YouTube in order to use the chat feature. Then you can uh, send a question or a comment. And after I get done with my little opening blurb, about 15, 20 minutes, I guess, maybe closer to 20 minutes, I'll look over there to see what's on the chat and try to respond to you um, if there's any questions or comments. So let's get into it. I wrote out my thoughts on this once again because I wanted to have them organized and I'm going to put it on the screen for those of you who are watching by video. Once again, let me re remind those of you who are listening that this was live streamed on Saturday morning, March 12th, 2022. And it is also being recorded for later viewing on YouTube and for listening on your various podcast platforms. So you may be listening live, you may be listening later. Uh, if you're listening live, you can do chats with me in real time and I will be responding to those. So that's what I'm talking about when I say chats. All right, let me get this first principle up on the screen. And there 
I'm going to read through this for the sake of those who are listening and uh, explain as they go along. So it says, people live in social relationships to better protect and provide for themselves and to satisfy their desire for companionship and communal belonging. Now that first part, all I'm saying is that human beings are social beings, that we live together in society. That's where you normally find us. We're not like Tarzan off living independent in the jungle and meeting our own needs through our own ability to hunt and build a hut in the trees. We uh, live in society in order that we all can feel more secure and that we can work together to provide for our needs and also just because we feel fulfilled as human beings when we belong to a community and uh, have that sense of you know companionship of other human beings. So that's the first part is just saying that we're social beings. Second, human dignity requires that social relations be free of physical coercion, physical coercion and violence to the greatest extent possible. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm espousing what is a libertarian principle that uh, may be familiar to people in the United States from libertarians who see reduced government as uh, reduced government coercion, reduced government in general, as one of the most important principles because it's based on human freedom. I base my ethics on human dignity. I'm not going to go into the fine points of my whole ethical uh, philosophy because it can get kind of tricky. Uh, but what I do want to say, human dignity is, is encompasses both human freedom and our obligation to treat each other respectfully. As human beings, if we recognize each other as similar and because we want some respect, some dignity for ourselves, we want to give that to others. And coercing people, threatening them with violence, is not treating people with dignity. We have government, putatively, so that when people act in ways that harm other people, we can stop them from doing that, either through the uh, threat of some kind of sanctions like fines or jailing or even execution. Uh, but that may be a lot less necessary than we think it is. Now, if you go back for a minute to my statement about last week that everybody should have the resources to live with, live in dignity, that is, they should have the basics essential to living like housing, food, water, uh, heat, clothes, all of that, medical care. There would be a lot less poverty, obviously, and with less poverty, there would probably be less drug addiction, less crime, less mental health uh, problems because there'd be less uh, social stressors. For part of my career, I was a mental health counselor and almost everybody I saw, whether they had anxiety or depression or something else, those were the two most common, it was related to financial stressors in their life. So when you reduce the financial stress, you reduce mental health problems, substance abuse, petty theft, all that kind of stuff would go down and there'd be a lot less need for police and violence. I think as we get into the part about economics, we will also see that we could do with a lot less government in the realm of uh, regulating the economy if it was organized properly. 
that is if it was organized not for personal profit and gain of investors but organized in such a way that it had more socially useful directions that the work was organized for all right so that first part simply says we want to reduce to the greatest extent possible uh, the use of violence the threat of violence and coercion on people now I'm going to get into the part specifically about government now how we should organize government and my view of how to do that based on that first principle so you might call this one principle 1a all right therefore the people in a society have the collective right to choose remove or replace anyone given leadership responsibilities by democratic methods that are fair to all and produce representation for the largest majority possible now that first parse is should be fairly familiar it simply says excuse me I'm getting a sip of tea simply says that we should have democratic governance that if we are setting up a a process for writing laws and enforcing those laws everybody should have a say in that so that's pretty familiar that we have the collective right to choose remove replace any leaders by democratic methods that are fair to all and produce representation for the largest majority possible and going along with that the second part people collectively also have the right to place restrictions on the actions of any governmental bodies so as to protect personal political and economic freedoms all right so what does that mean well that's limited government again that should be a familiar concept um, from our American tradition particularly protecting rights that allow you to engage in political activity such as freedom of speech freedom of press and the right of association that's going to be a big one as they go forward into economics but well, one thing I would not say is a is a right is some kind of absolute right to private property as I said last week private property can only be justified if everybody has the basic resources to survive which would mean something like a universal basic income which would mean that everybody that has property usually financial property such as money in the bank or stocks bonds investments things like that would have to give up part of that in order to provide for the universal basic income for everybody else that is taxation is part of this we can't claim an absolute right of private property against taxes taxes to my mind should be simple and progressive not a lot of um, deductions exclusions um, all that kind of stuff could be done away with that's a tall order I know they've been talking about that for decades my entire life and the tax code just gets more complex but it should be progressive that uh, the higher your income goes the higher the percentage of that income is going to go to public purposes all right so that's private property is not on the same level as things like the personal rights of freedom of expression and free association okay so what kind of government would that look like how would that be different than what we have today well for one thing it would be truly democratic in a way that we don't have currently right now our system is not fair to everybody because of gerrymandered districts some places are not fair to one of the major parties it gives a big advantage to the other major party almost everywhere our system is not fair to other parties 
to parties other than the two major parties. It, ballot access is very difficult. Our method of voting tends to marginalize new parties and different parties. And finally, it's not fair in the sense that the, far from looking for the widest majority representation, it allows people to come to office with less than a majority, with a minority. And that's because we get to only vote for one candidate and the candidate with the most votes wins. So anytime you have a uh, close race between the two major parties and any third candidate is in, it's possible that someone will win with less than 50% of the vote. That's less than a majority. And we don't know that another candidate would have been able to get a majority of the votes if there was a way to show a preference between the two major party candidates. So we don't have a fair system of voting. We don't have a truly democratic uh, system. And I think there would be an awful lot of changes needed to create something more fair. Just to give a few examples based on what I just said, there are problems with our system. We could have independent redistricting commissions that would set the boundaries for uh, political districts in a way that's fair, uh, in a way that follows guidelines that is not calculated to simply advantage one party or the other. Uh, we could have alternative methods of voting, preferential voting. Ranked choice voting is getting a lot of attention, but there's a newer form that's an improvement on ranked choice voting, star voting. I've mentioned this in the past repeatedly. We could set up a different form of voting, which would be much more fair and ballot access, we need to make it easier for candidates to get on the ballot and not give special advantages to particular parties. In fact, in my mind, parties should have nothing to do with who's able to get on the ballot. Every candidate that wants to get on the ballot should have exactly the same requirements. It shouldn't depend upon whether their party qualified for the ballot at some past point. It should be something that shows that that candidate has sufficient support to be on the ballot, such as a certain number of signatures, maybe a, um, uh, a fee of some kind, application fee, a modest amount that's possible for someone to raise without having to have recourse to billionaires or millionaires in order to raise that kind of money. So fairer ballot access. So there's a lot of things that we could do, and we'd have to even go further if we wanted to make it truly fair, such as getting rid of the electoral college and the uh, presidential elections and also getting rid of the Senate because it doesn't have the same number of people in each state yet representation is the same for each state two senators it's not a fair system far from a fair system and I would make that a priority in any political program because before you can do anything else that I talk about for public policy ideas you have to have a fair voting system to get people in office who actually represent all of us to the greatest extent possible, and also induce all of us to find ways to talk to each other instead of being stuck in our own partisan quarters. All right, so need a more democratic system. Um, protection of individual rights. Uh, any government, I think, would have to have a at least a judicial system and a method of jury uh, determination of claims in order to, anytime someone injures somebody else, there would be a way for them to have recourse to the courts. Uh, as I said earlier, I think there would be a lot fewer crimes that people's needs were provided for. And if we changed our economic system, which I'm going to get to in a minute, there'd be even fewer problems 
for the government to need to take care of. We could have a reduced military and reduced police forces. And I think ideally, and I think this is actually feasible at some point in the distant future, have no government or have a government that really is governing and not doesn't have to depend upon coercion or the threats of violence at all. No prisons, no corporal punishment, anything like that. If you had a sane society, I think that was not traumatizing people with violence and with economic necessity, people would be able to grow into fully human beings and exercise our capacities for socially getting along with each other and not, and we each have our needs taken care of to the extent we don't have to harm each other to get our needs taken care of. Um, so I think it would benefit us all. I think it's feasible, at least I can imagine it. I think we have the knowledge to be able to get to that point. Just some, uh, some people don't want the system to change because they think it's benefiting them, I think. A new system would benefit them as well, but that's another issue. Okay, so that's it for government. Give a quick sketch of what I think a better government system could look like. Now let's look at economics, particularly organization of workplaces, because most of our work is done in concert with other people. Very few of us actually work totally independently. So let's look at that principle. It's a little bit longer than the other one, so I'm going to take a little time in looking at that. All right, so let's go through this step-by-step, step. get another sip of tea to uh, wet my throat. Okay. Therefore, the organization of work should be for social benefit and with the voluntary participation of those who do the work. Well, what I'm saying there is that work should not be organized for the private profit of investors, but for the social benefit of all of us. That is, work organizations are giving people useful work to do that benefits other people. Grow food so they can eat, build houses so they can live in them, and etc. So work should be organized for social benefit. And voluntary participation means that nobody is coerced into uh, what effectively would be slave labor. You can't be forced to do something. You enter into it willingly. Uh, there's all kind of questions people have about, well, if people didn't have to work, would they work? I think they would, but we can get into that. Those who work in a particular work organization have the right to make collective democratic decisions about the conditions for their participation. And here I'm talking about what we would think of as unions, because I think the right to associate, let me let me show my face here for those of you who are watching my video. Because of the right of free association with other people, people work in a particular workplace should have the total freedom to talk to each other about their concerns about work, to come together as a collective body of whatever size, a small group, a larger group, all of them, and bargain with whoever uh, is running the show there about how and under what conditions they'll participate, how work should be organized, how they should be treated, how much they should be paid. All of that should be up for negotiation. There should be less emphasis on needing government permission to create a union to do any of that. To me, it's implied in the right of free association. People at the workplace have the right of free association. Now, I include this, although as I'm going to get into, what I really think we should have is workers' control 
of businesses, I see the need for entrepreneurs to create new businesses, people who see new opportunities or have new ideas for products or better ways to produce things. I think there should be a role for entrepreneurs to get something up and running so that they should have some control um, to fulfill that vision and get people involved in working for them. But at some point, once you have a number of people at your workplace working with you, those people should have the human right to associate and to bargain with you and the right to walk off the job if they so choose to. So I think this would simplify um, union representation if we simply recognize that people don't need government per permission to associate with each other and to decide to voluntarily withdraw from the job if they don't have the conditions they'd like. It should be just recognized as a human right. It's not a privilege. All right. Let's move on then to um, special privileges for work organizations. I'll go back to the screen here so you can follow along with me if you're watching the video. This final part here. Any special privileges for a work organization, such as recognition of a corporate existence, apart from those individuals who initiated, direct, or fund the organization, should be provided to organizations run for nonprofit purposes or organizations that are democratically controlled by their workers. Corporate capitalism is a big part of the problem here because it institutionalizes on a large scale principles that the people who invest money in a business are the ones who get to control it, who get to choose the management, and they use the people who work in it simply as resources, as though they're things and those workers don't, aren't given the uh, acknowledgement of human beings that they should have a say in what they're doing, that they're there voluntarily, they should be there voluntarily, and if we had a society in which everybody had their basic needs met, uh, then their participation in work would be voluntary. But if we're going to give special privileges, as a corporation is a special privilege, it gives the organization the right to continue to exist after its uh, founders have died or moved on or left. Uh, it protects the assets of the people who are in charge of it from uh, liability in case the organization is sued for hurting consumers or hurting a worker or uh, damaging the environment. Uh, so it protects the organization from financial liabilities and particularly when we have capitalist corporations, it protects the investors all that's up at risk is what they invested in it and not anything personal. So I'm distinguishing here corporations and the special privileges they have from business organizations that are more like single proprietorships and partnerships where a specific individual or set of individuals can be held liable for any damages they do and are primarily responsible for the business. And if they die or leave the business, somebody else takes over. It's, it's not that that business has, um, its, its existence is based on specific identifiable human beings who are responsible for what's going on. I'm thinking of the entrepreneurs that I talked about a moment ago. Once a business becomes more firmly institutionalized, that is, becomes a corporation, those privileges of incorporation should only be afforded businesses that are actually serving for a social benefit that is nonprofit purposes or it's controlled by the workers 
Uh, I could explain that a little bit further, but mostly the, the basis for this is the human right of free association and the desire for any government privileges to be inducing public benefits rather than private profit. And I think workers' control benefits the public in a number of ways because you don't have the uh, workplace conditions damaging, uh, stressing out workers or um, causing them risk to their physical and mental well-being. Uh, they're able to, uh, they, because they're members of a community, they'll be more cognizant of how that business is affecting other people. They may run it for a profit for themselves, but because other businesses are competitors, they'll have to compete with them, and that should keep costs down the way that people generally think competition between businesses should. So I think workers' control would have more of a tendency to be socially beneficial, at least more beneficial to more people, all the workers rather than the small set of uh, investors, than corporations that are run for a private profit. In fact, corporations started out as government privileges for organizations that were doing work that benefited that particular society. And gradually over time, it became some, somewhat of a just like a uh, something that anybody could apply for for any reason. You should go back to the old understanding corporations that when you give them those special privileges, they have to provide a public benefit. So those are the two aspects of um, organizing society that I think are important, the government and uh, the work organizations. Future shows, I'll get a little bit more into the public policy details of what kinds of things would do that. Obviously, changes in law regarding corporations and changes in law regarding the right of people uh, to organize in the workplace. And uh, let's see, do we have any questions yet? Yeah, I don't see any questions. I'm not sure if anyone is out there or what's happening. We are at the um, almost at the nine o'clock mark, so a lot packed into this show. Anybody out there? Anybody got any comments for me? Once again, uh, I know there's a delay when people chat between the time they type in a question or comment and the time I see it. But I think there's been sufficient time for something to show up, and I'm not seeing anything. So I'm not sure what that means if only one person is there or nobody's there. Next week, I will go into um, extracting from these ethical considerations a basic set of policy principles, uh, kind of like slogans, like the main areas that would need to be addressed. And then beyond that, how we can actually implement this, because I'm not satisfied with just saying we should do these things, but I'd like to be able to say, how can we do these things? How can we, given the circumstances we're in, with the unresponsiveness of our political system, actually make something happen? I got a text message just now, probably somebody letting me know whether the chat is working or not. Somebody says they are trying to type up a question. I guess it's a long one, so I'll be patient for a few more minutes to see what pops up. I uh, hope uh, your day is going well, wherever you are. And why am I dwelling on ethics? Because I think ethics does drive us to a certain extent. 
uh, not just material interests, but I think they go together. Even for those who would be, pay higher taxes for these, uh, say for example, a universal basic income, I think what they have to think about is how their quality of life would change if they were not seeing a lot of unhoused people on the streets looking at the monitor again. I guess I'd like to see myself. Fewer unhoused people on the streets, less crime, communities that were not so um, segregated by income where there is more variety in people. Uh, I, I think the kind of society we could build would be much, have a much higher quality of life for all of us. All right. Um, Something popped up on my chat, but there's nothing in it so far. It just says the name of the person that's there. And it's uh, just about one minute to nine, so I'm not sure if I'm going to wait for a question. If a question does pop up after I end the show, I will address it next week. You can put comments on the recorded versions of the show by going to the Allen on Politics YouTube page and putting comments on there. Once again, I'm looking at the monitor rather than the camera. I have a bad habit that way. Or you can go to Facebook and look for the Allen on Politics page and put comments there on the videos. Or if the uh, video pops up on other groups, you can put comments on there. I may not see them, but maybe other people will want to comment and maybe eventually they'll flag my attention to it. And finally, I created a new Facebook group a couple weeks ago called the Freedom and Cooperation Network, trying to move towards getting people talking more about these ideas with each other. Um, hasn't worked so far. I think what I neglect to say is you really need to hit those enable notifications so you know when something has come up and you can go over there and comment on it or like or share or whatever. So uh, I guess that's it for this week. We are at the 9 o'clock mark. Uh, thank you very much for listening, watching. I hope to hear from you and also hope to uh, have you join in again next week. So long.